0: John here, introducing our second conversation with Hamid, a.k.a. A.H. Almas. This is a fascinating conversation. Roger said to me that he felt Hamid was perhaps one of the greatest sages that our human family has ever produced. And coming from Roger, that says a lot. And my experience with this has been amazing. He's talking about his new book, non-dual love, gets into the deep side of the human swimming pool, maybe the infinite side of the human swimming pool. Don't miss it. Welcome to Deep Transformation, self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuis. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution.
1: I'm Roger Walsh and our co-host is John Dupuis. And I am so happy that today we have back with us Hamid Ali, whose pen name is A.H. Almas. A man who's just deeply touched my life through his spiritual teachings and has actually touched and transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands, actually millions of people. Amit is really, truly one of the spiritual giants of our time. His many openings and profound insights have been the catalyst for literally dozens of really profound uh, novel books. He has created the Ridwan School to transmit his teachings and understandings. And he has forged a synthesis of multiple traditions from a combination of his own direct experience and insights, plus a study of the world's spiritual contemplative traditions, plus a knowledge of contemporary psychology. His most recent works have been writing a trilogy on love, the first one of which was Love Unveiled, and most recently, he released a second volume, Non-Dual Love, a very important topic, given the superficiality of our culture's understanding of love. Our culture has a Hollywood-derived image of love as a romantic infatuation and obsession. And yet, throughout history, there has been a recognition and exploration of far more profound, encompassing, radical, and transformative kinds of love truly profound spiritual loves. So it's this which Hamid is pointing to and providing exercises for opening to in his new book, Non-Dual Love. Hamid, welcome, and perhaps you could begin by saying something about the the nature of this non-dual love your book is about and you're pointing us to.
2: Good to be with you, everybody. Yeah, Again. (laughs) We good to talk about a topic that is important for me and for my teaching. Non-dual love is similar to non-dual awareness or non-dual consciousness, and because non-duality is always or most of the time looked at from perspective of consciousness or awareness like consciousness is a non-dual reality, non-dual from a consciousness or awareness perspective. You rarely hear about it in terms of love, which is the goodness inherent in our uh, spiritual nature. So non-dual love is similar in the sense it is unbounded, universal, as uh, the nature of everything. However, it is pure goodness, Pure love, sweetness, delicacy, and intimacy, and lighthearted joyfulness. So, I mean, I'm sure many non-dual teachers are loving, but they don't talk about love as our non-duality. So, in this book, I made non-dual be significant in non-duality because really non-duality without heart is dry and not attractive to most people. You know, most people well, well, don't care about constant awareness, but love, everybody wants love to be loved and all of that. But here, love takes it to more spiritual height, to the depth of uh, love. So my previous book, I talk about love in general, but here I talk about non-dual love which is when you experience love as not only a f- emotion or feeling in your heart, not only as uh, a nectary presence in your heart, but as a light that pervades everything. But the light is almost somewhat liquefied and has a sweetness like a nectar. And, uh, and it fills the heart, fills the room everywhere and we feel it as really potential for all beings and it is the ground of reality similar to the way awareness or consciousness or presence is because it is one of the dimensions of the ultimate uh, ground and here appearing as the true goodness like uh, I remember studying Plato, they talk about his Platonic ideas. The main idea is the good. He called the good as the source of all other Platonic uh, uh, kitabs, and, and you wonder why. What is the good? The good is what a human being, human being good is almost synonymous with love. somebody can't be good to you if they're not loving. You know, to to be good to somebody means to be loving, to be attentive in a way that's good for them. And that's what love is. It's, It's not only I'm feeling good and happy, but naturally I want the others to feel that way too, good and happy. Not just liberated and free, but... Feeling happy and
1: fulfilled.
0: Oh. If I start if I start weeping any of these points, it's it's just for joy, and gratitude. So don't mind me. But I'll just say that my first experience of God was I was 11 years old and I was in my bedroom reading the New Testament, just discovered the New Testament, and this powerful experience of God is love and God is everywhere, and it just blew my socks off, and it shaped the whole. Direction of my life, and I've, I've often said I'm God haunted. But to hear the affirmation in your work and, and reading this book of my initial experience that was so powerful for the young boy is unspeakably beautiful and deeply appreciated. Thank you.
2: Yeah, so I'm good to hear that, and I think people have those kind of experiences opening. And when you experience the love, you know that God's the love is everywhere. What was it exactly that you experience was everywhere?
0: That's a great just just this pervasive godness love.
2: But what, what is it? Does it have a color, shape, texture, anything? What's that recognition? Warmthness, relief, joy mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. heart. hmm Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's one way it happens. And in the book, I do connect it with divinity, with God. And, God love. I I call it actually, the usual name for the non love in this teaching is divine love. Yeah. I call it divine love. Uh, differentiating it from other kind of loves. Partly because it is pervasive. Not one person's love, but the love of reality itself. And completely pure. Has no self. No self-interest. No self you know, reference, and its purity and its selflessness make me call it divine, you know.
1: You mentioned, there's a lot in what, you, what you've already said, Amit, <laughs> several threads I'd like to come back to, but one of them was the benevolent, the inherent benevolence of yeah. this love. And you have a line in your book that says that this love reveals the fundamental benevolence of reality. And that's a, that's quite a statement. I remember Einstein saying that one of the most most <laughs> important questions was: Is the universe benevolent? Well, you have an answer. Yes.
2: Yeah. For most people, when they look around, they don't see benevolence. Especially these days, you look around society. it says benevolence? That doesn't seem to be the main thing. Main thing seems to be division, and uh, you know, and. And antagonism and all of that so yeah so when you say divine benevolence you know people who have what's called faith or have deep experience know about it but it is hidden to the ordinary eye the ordinary heart because it's an invisible or an underlying deep ground of our consciousness so we have to penetrate deeper so it's potential to every human being to experience it but that doesn't mean it's apparent to every human being but it is benevolence in the sense the way i look at it you know roger is that without love there will be no reason for the universe to exist there's no reason for things to develop to get more developed, to become more intelligent, more capable. What does that? It's a goodness of sort, you know, that wants something to... And, you know, the Sufis ha- have a way, they say it. They say God loved to be known. So God created the universe. So God, out of love. So the God would be known. So, So the creation is out of love. And and God wanted to be known through the human being. By the human being knowing God, the human being know themselves. They know their depth, their true connection, the true source. So to see the world through the eyes of love, the universe is beautiful. The universe is luminous with goodness. But you have to see it with the eyes of love. Most people. They're not and um, have don't have the capacity. They have potential, but they don't have the. Capacity. It doesn't need. Like John said, something happened when he was a kid. He was really curious. So the child is open. They can have those kind of possible opening. Some people have it. Run, but it usually takes a lot of practice. Like the Sufis and the Christians do. A lot spend most of their life trying to working on through prayer and all kind of methodology to uh, approach uh, God through love. You know, like Rumi writes all the time about love. And God and love are inseparable for him. And also the universe is inseparable from that love. But the thing about it is, the reason I asked John that question, you know, Roger, that Rumi wrote a lot about love, as you know. So did many, most poetry is about love. As you know, most songs in our culture are about love. Most novels are about love. I mean, human beings are preoccupied with love because they really need it from the time we're babies. Without love, we can't survive. however, I rarely find in the literature a true description of what love is it like. What does it feel like? What is it? You know, what is this love? It's true, it's goodness, it's benevolence, it's happy, and all that. But I see that in the outer expressions of it, not the very substance of it, the very beingness of it. So this book tried to get into both the Expression of it when I describe, but also the very beingness of it. What's that feel like to to be it, to feel it? And that is part of the contribution of this book. And I partly put it there because I don't find it in literature much. That, you know, phenomenological, you see, experiential description or presentation of what is. What's love? What's, what's, uh, what's this uh, medium of love feels like? What's it made out of?
0: And, and and Hamid, one of the things you said that really touched me, because you can have an experience of love, such as sexual love, that can be ecstatic and wonderful, but it can be totally selfish just to feel great in that moment. But what you talk about is the benevolence that comes out of this love. And without that, you know, without this love and without the benevolence, it's like it's pretty pointless life and, and all our practices and, and all the stuff we're doing. If it doesn't essentially come down to that some level.
2: Yeah, you see, uh, so love appears in many ways. One of them is in romantic love, as you said, or sexual love or friendly love family love, all of that. These are the individual expression of love that I focused on in my previous book, Love Unveiled. Different kind of passionate love or love of connection, love of appreciation. So even sexual love, even though it is self-seeking, wanting gratification, for somebody who is awakened, sexual love too becomes benevolence become what's called so sexuality, become pure Tantra. Pure sexual Tantra, which means the practice of sexual encounter is to bring out more of this love, the goodness of love. So it's not just gratification. It's really going deeper into the realm of the spirit. So sexuality is one way. I mean, sexuality has pleasure, has goodness, attraction, all of that. That love gives it. However, most human beings don't recognize that; they just recognize the gratification. Just get it on, finish. <laughs> you know, and but that's not re- it, it. Can't go further. But at the beginning, at least, there people like each other, fall in love, they have sex, they get they get babies. Human race can, you know. So love does do that. It's, it's a limited way that love expression is, but it is still useful for life, you know. But it can go further if the human beings who are experiencing it are open to that, that potential.
1: I mean, you have implied several times that there are degrees to which we can experience and open to and apprehend this, apprehend love. and. I wonder, and you point out in your book a series of uh, spiritual openings, stages of openings to love, and perhaps you could say something about those.
2: Yeah, so first of all, you know, we start, people start with what they know as about, about love. Everybody uses the word love, but most people believe they know what love is, because They either felt loved or feel they want love, or sometimes they feel they love somebody, they love their father, their mother, their kids, partner, and in some sense they do. However, upon deeper reflection, that is really the outer expression, the outer, more the reflection of spiritual love and the emotional level. You know so some people who are loving you know, love their partner or kid it is for, for their good, they want their good. I mean it, it has some of the elements of true love in it, has some kind of selflessness, but its tend to be limited, you know, and it's not fully you know manifest. However, the other stage when we when we feel that love, we really feel our heart full of something. Our consciousness is full of some kind of consciousness, a medium, some kind of almost uh, nectar they could almost drink, you know, but it has a softness, has a sweet, uh, you taste it a sweetness. you sweetness. That requires the inner taste. Like taste, for instance, when they say somebody is sweet, say, oh, this very is sweet. What do you mean? They don't mean if you lick them, they're sweet. You know, they express themselves in some kind of way. They hold themselves. But that ha- has something to do with love, but indirectly. Because love, when we experience it, we can actually taste it has a taste. And the taste is almost in your tongue. You know, like when I taste it, I taste it in my tongue, but it goes all the way to the heart. Like the heart is really the tasting organ. According to the Sufis, the main organ, spiritual organs taste you know, and the heart tastes, when it tastes love, it tastes like a heavenly sweetness, beautiful sweetness that not like eating a dessert, which is a different kind, people like dessert, a different kind of sweetness that they like one kind or another. This is sort of an earthly kind of sweetness that it's hard to find equivalent to it on earth, but it's sort of, Opens the heart, uh, open the consciousness, things expand and open and relax. So that's another uh, you know dimension of experiencing love, which is an individual way, meaning I feel love within me, even towards somebody or self-love, or I feel it toward the divine or the spiritual nature, whatever, or I love to I love to find out the truth to experience love that way. Another stage is to recognize that this love that is manifesting in the heart is just one wave of a whole ocean. That this is the outer, the so the tip of the iceberg. By feeling it, I could feel at some point that, oh, it goes beyond my skin, it goes beyond my room. It is everywhere. And then I can be this individual, feeling my heart as an expression of all of this ocean of love. then this ocean expresses itself through my individual heart and comes through to other being, to the world. Another level is recognizing myself as the ocean. I am the ocean of love. I am love. I am love and I am the loving universe. I'm in the benevolence of reality. That is the self-realization of non-dual love. There are many other degrees, but this is the major ones.
0: And I imagine that the fruit of that, that recognition of that encounter, of that understanding is a deep, deep abiding peace that essentially, no matter what's going on in our world and all the stuff that we see, it's still, it's ultimately okay. And there's no way to escape it, ultimately.
2: Yeah, so you're bringing in a good point here, John, which is when we feel the presence of love, whether in this boundless oceanic view or just feeling that there is love, you know, in, in the environment, you know, whether it's spiritual love or we felt loved by our family, we tend to have a trust in reality, trust in life. And that trust manifests as things will be okay. Whatever happened, it will be okay. And the, this feeling that I call it basic trust, which is meaning trusting reality as a whole, not trusting the particle at this moment, but trusting like wherever it's going to go, it's going to be ultimately for the good. And that's because we're in touch we are informed by this inner benevolence and that is its impact on the human soul and the human mind and consciousness it is a sense of trust sense that things would be okay which is something lacking in the world these days most people don't know you know because we many people have strayed far away from that you know ground of love and we're more into self-protection and you know and reaction, all of that. And we're more self-centered. So the more self-centered, less we're in touch with that inner benevolence that makes us feel it's okay. It's okay if the other person doesn't agree with me. they are just another. But now, in you know, the way people feel it, and the person doesn't agree with me, and you know, I hate them. well you know love manifests in so many ways and varieties and so yeah so i agree with you that that we need to be in touch somehow touched by love or aware of its presence as as something that is there holding us i call the experience of being held lovingly when the child is loved when the uh, young child is loved, you hold them, the mother or the parents hold them. And there is a way they hold them, not loving, they're appreciative, they're, they're precious. And that goes along with the sense of connecting them with the, the whole being is held by something deeper, something more profound, which is a benevolent love. And that appears as the behind the sense of the soul feeling, I'm held and things will be okay.
1: And I mean, one of your unique contributions is that you link this basic trust and the capacity for opening to non dual love to early childhood experience and specifically through the school of object relations. And so perhaps you could talk about that interface.
2: You see, the way I see it is that we are born with basic trust human being come into the world innocent. We're innocent and we come from where our spiritual nature is still pure, our soul has a purity, is not disconnected. And so we are inherently trusting. We have this basic trust. However, depending on what happens in early childhood and later, whether that's encouraged and and expanded or is it limited and whittled away and sort of damaged because of what happened many people when they come basic trust but they end up feeling not trusting because reality doesn't accord with that uh, original thing we come up with we encounter reality that's destructive or painful or difficult or you know rejecting so We begin to lose that. It doesn't completely go away. It just goes underground. But it's just like a human being has love inherently to them. They have basic trust inherently to them. So when I teach basic trust, how to regain basic trust, basically we work on dissolving the history that limits it. A history that limits it, that obstruct it.
0: So restoring what was there already.
2: Yes, exactly. It's already there, I think, for everybody.
1: You put the non-dual love in an even bigger picture because you describe most tra- I'll step back and just say that most traditions describe the fundamental nature of. Our being and of the universe, our true nature to use your term and the term which is used elsewhere too. But describe our true nature as one particular thing, as, for example, consciousness or rigpa or being. But you actually suggest that our fundamental nature and the nature of all everything can be experienced in different ways. And you lay out five of these, I think, divine love. As presence, awareness, emptiness, um change or dynamism, this isn't something one sees often as as I understand different traditions, so love to hear you speak to the to the multifaceted nature of our experience of true nature
2: yeah, I think it's, it's a great question, a question that many people don't don't entertain doesn't occur to them. Because they adhere to one teaching or another. And each teaching they have what they call the ultimate. You know, the ultimate is empty awareness. The ultimate is Satchitananda, consciousness and bliss. The ultimate is consciousness or stillness or whatever. And so that, one of my favorite thing I did in the past is to sort of did a talk or article about how many ultimates are there. <laughs> <laughs> because sure. H.T. teaching says this is the ultimate, but they're not the same. They're not talking about the same thing. It's not like they talk about the same thing in a different language. No, they're actually talking about different thing. And I know it because I explored those teachings and I, I, I experienced their ultimates. And they are really different. To experience the ultimate absorption, which is the Dharmakaya, which is pure emptiness and clarity and stillness and profundity is different from experiencing the advaita vedanta, you know, ultimate, you know, as consciousness as being, because important for Satyananda is sat, is just being. But for the Buddhists, it's non-being. The emptiness is fundamental. Things don't really exist. So which one is ultimate? So my experience, that means both, and both seem to be valid. So our spiritual nature can manifest itself in those ways, in many other ways, you see. For the Sufis, it is love, for instance. And Christianity, frequently, some of the mystics equate God with love, you know, And, and even some of the Hindu tradition actually go toward love. The bhakti kind, the, the divine and love are inseparable. So, I, I like the topic of the fact that there are many ultimates. You see, that each one is them is really, an, it's not wrong. The Buddha, the Dzogchen is not wrong. You know, Vedanta is not wrong. They're correct, except it's just that is the ultimate for that teaching for that uh, view of reality which is wonderful view complete enough for realization liberation all of that you know somebody who's in that teaching they don't need to know anything else however i happen not to be one of those things I, I didn't i studied them but i didn't follow any one of them exclusively so because of that, I, I was—I didn't know, I, I was surprised. I kept being <laughs> thrown from one to the other, <laughs> and then I found out after a while. I asked myself, "Well, which was more ultimate?" For I? there was a time when, when I was in a, a quandary, you were trying to to determine for myself, you know, <laughs> which one <laughs> is it really? <laughs> Until I finally got further revelation that showed, no, they're all true. And one of the ways that can manifest is ultimate, pure, benevolent love.
0: In one of your earlier books, you talked just about what you were talking about now. And I found it amazingly liberating. I do have my own kind of ultimate experience and it's not quite the other thing. So instead of judging myself or judge, you know, mine's better than theirs and all this stuff, it's like, it helps us actually to love more deeply all the different paths and give them respect. It's just like, that I don't know why I don't know if anybody said that before. it sounds kind of sufi ish in spirit, but yeah. I've never heard anybody say it as, as beautifully and clearly as you put across and it's it's very liberating,
2: yeah, the ultimate can be love because it is true it is uh, love has beingness to it, has consciousness to it. I mean it's not like a contradiction to the other there is presence. it's presence. It's conscious of itself, knows itself, and consciousness itself, it is awareness, has all of these implicit in it, but also has this sense of abundance, sense of giving, sense of benevolence, sense of beautiful radiance. I mean, you you see some Zogchen teacher, you can tell they're loving. I mean, if if you've seen videos or met Dilkukhensar Rinpoche, it's hard to say he's not loving. He's, he's he's full of heart, but he doesn't talk about love in his teaching, it's, because it's not part of the teaching. But love is really in all tradition. If somebody's really realize their heart opens, and they're full of love. It is, it's unavoidable. Mm. Is is love is just inherent to to the consciousness or the fund to the fundamental nature. And when we are free, when we don't have obstructions, the, the way it manifests is the heart opens and love emerges and the one is loving anyway, whether they see love as basic or not. Oh.
1: And it seems that different practices are effectively different epistemological tools or technologies that they enact or open or make manifest different facets. Of true nature, was that right? Yeah,
2: well, because each tradition has their own practices. First, they have their view, their perspective about reality already there. And then they have practices that try to make this view experience, right? And, of course, it leads to the ultimate in that view. And so the practices are oriented that way. And they sometimes they work, frequently they work, and they do manifest. And I think also the the individuals who become realized of those traditions, it's not like they don't experience other things. They do experience them, but I think their view in their mind is that they think is the truth. The other thing that arises is an occasional thing that happens. You know, that's my guess, because I can't imagine somebody like. Dr. Kansa didn't experience everything as love. He must have. He just, but in his mind, awareness is more fundamental. You know, empty awareness is more fundamental. And that's what the teaching say. That's what his teachers say. And he does experience it that way. But for a Sufi, love is sort of what makes everything ticks, It's what makes everything happens. You see.
1: and. In your description here in this book of non dual love, but in more detail elsewhere, you describe five kind of fundamental aspects or facets of true nature. I mentioned them, but to list them again in this book, you list divine love, presence, awareness, emptiness, and change or dynamism. Yeah. I'm not clear on the difference between presence and awareness.
2: Presence has a sense of beingness, you know, as a fullness of being, uh, that's like uh, presence is the presence of what I am. So presence has a fullness, has a beingness, although it's similar to awareness in the sense it's colorless, transparent, and has awareness and has knowing to it. But it has a fullness and part of its knowingness is the knowing of its being, Awareness is knowing of its non-being. They both have knowing. But uh, awareness tends to be not as substantial, more subtle and very sort of fine. And the word is more like it's not substantial at all. It's, it's, It's ephemeral. And that's why the world from perspective of awareness appear as phantasmagoric. Like everything appears as sort of pictures, we call it appearance. Everything is an appearance like a like a, a vision of a form, but uh, the form is really all empty. While in the presence, all the forms are full of their beingness, of their existence. So existence in the being in the presence level, I think the 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 Advaita Vedanta focus on, be, on presence and being. Yes. although they don't call it, they call it consciousness, but they do say it has being. That's it. But the presence can be more or less dominant than just the consciousness. Some people, you know, some non-dual teacher, experience consciousness when I mean, you say, "What is consciousness? conscious? Consciousness itself? What is that?" They don't get it yet. It is presence. You know, they say it's being, they're aware of being, but the actual uh, ontological sense of uh, fullness of, of being is there in some but not in others, it's not always clear. But so presence, I have that dimension, pure presence. For me, that's how I first learned, first I learned about divine love, and then... Harrow's uh, pure presence and it was filled the whole universe, everything made out of that and and we are walking around and, and and I am fullness everything around me is pure fullness and beingness and true existence you know and it's a beautiful you know condition to be in it's like the fullness and richness of of reality. So uh, I don't, you know, adhere to the Buddhist thing that emptiness. You should know about emptiness, and that will liberate you. I think it's true. Reality can be experienced as fundamentally empty, but also can be experienced also as fundamentally full and fullness of being. And but it's not being in the, in the mental sense of existence; it's a more felt more immediate sense of uh, recognition being recognizing itself as being which emphasizes some teaching like some the christianity and other places and so the five dimension i mentioned is because the way it occurred in this teaching but i also see it as appearing in different traditions Some emphasize one more than the other. I think everybody has them all, but what is emphasized in the teaching, what is conceptualized, is one of them usually. And the dynamism, the creative dynamism, is the dimension that shows how things happen, how things change. Because when you say everything is one, right, or non-dual, it doesn't explain how come things move around. What make them move around, what make things develop and change. It doesn't explain that. You need to experience the dimension of uh, creative dynamism to see how things happen. And that shows the way things happen is different from what the ordinary mind sees it. Because it plays with the whole idea of time and space and all of that.
1: And the dynamism is me, anyone was a curious one among these five, because. The other qualities, divine love, presence, awareness, emptiness, feel like they can all apply to the absolute in it, both in its unmanifest or unmanifest original nature and in its expressions. But it feels like change and dynamism only apply to the manifest expressions. Am I missing something?
2: No, it it applies to everything. Everything is changing. Everything in constant change. Remember Heraclitus, the change of the fundamental nature of reality? Uh, he was onto something.
1: I I would agree, but yeah. these, these are the these are manifestations. How about the unmanifest?
2: Are you saying the unmanifest is presence or is it emptiness? Or is it what is that?
1: Well, let's let's go with say the uh, pick one out of the box, say the Ved- Vedantic Brahman, who yeah. by definition is unmoving, unchanging, etc.,
2: yeah, but then they say it is Shatijananda, which is, you know, the same people. They say it's uh, and moving whatever, but they say it's Chananda. And then, I mean, in my teaching, I talk about the absolute dimension, which is the pure the dimension that clarifies emptiness. I call that the unmanifest. And from that arises everything. Everything arises out of Nothing. And what makes it arise is that this uh, stillness ground has in it a dynamic quality that comes out of it that manifests awareness and manifests what awareness is aware of on constant change.
0: Deep stillness and emptiness is very pregnant at the same time. It's just ready to manifest into, I don't know, another universe or another person or another thing. And, and yeah. my experience touching into that, somehow everything's created from that mystery that I'm having a hard time putting into words right now.
2: So. Yeah, it is true. But you see the, the thing about it's a little t- tricky to talk about and manifest, like, you know, Ramana Maharshi or other talk about the unmanifest Brahman, but they're experiencing it and they describe it. How can it be unmanifest if, if it is manifesting in their experience? So, what's called unmanifest, you know, it's just relatively speaking to other dimensions. It is in the source of other dimensions. It is the source of, of love, awareness, presence, creative dynamism. In that sense, but it's not truly 100% unmanifest. There is a reality that is truly unmanifest. And that is not the Brahman.
1: Mm. And you have a different perspective from most traditions, Hamid, in the, as you describe in the book, most traditions ha- make the assumption that the absolute, whatever facet of it they're describing, is always present. And for example, love. Non-dual love is always present, but we become aware of it at different perhaps <laughs> hopefully we become aware of it. But you you suggest that uh, let me, I think I have the quote here, that the spiritual expanse and all spiritual potential only manifests when we're ready and open to it.
2: You you're hit on a very deep secret.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for really good.
2: And which also many people don't like to hear.
1: Uh-huh.
2: You see, because many teachings say, well, like the Zakshan say, well, awareness is already there. You just need to be aware of it. You're not aware of it. Now the Hindi will say, you know, the Brahmin or is already there, you're just not aware of it. Everything's made out of the consciousness, but because of our delusion, we're not aware of it. However, there are others who said something different. Take for example the teaching of Dogen, the Zen master, about Buddha nature, which is you know, Buddha nature, you know in Buddhism it can't be the Dharmakaya or empty or empty awareness. But for him, he said Buddha nature is present at the time of becoming a Buddha. When you are enlightened, you have Buddha nature. Before that, you can't say anything about Buddha nature, whether it is there or not there.
1: Hmm. Well, that certainly makes sense. I'm reminded. Yeah, of- because
2: logically it makes sense. How do we know? If, if you're not aware of it, why do you say it's there? But obviously, we can experience it that way. We have the potential to open up. And the way I see it, my perspective, is that true nature is is a potential for all beings. And it doesn't have to be always manifesting You you. Otherwise, how many things are manifesting? You know, Dharmakaya manifesting, Brahman is manifesting, love is man- I mean, after a while, things are crowded. <laughs> You know, they're all manifesting. How come they don't don't all manifest? You know, I think it's easier, you know, or simpler or makes more sense to say there are potential and they will manifest to the one who experiences it, who's open to it. Because who, who knows about it except the one who experiences it? You know, there's no proof, outer proof that it's there. It's individual experience. No ultimate experience except by an individual being. If you notice, ultimate being never comes by itself and appears in the sky. I mean, it's always comes experience of somebody. But the human being or the being is always important for the For ultimate nature to show itself, call it ultimate or true nature, showing itself, or us experiencing it. Showing itself or us experiencing it are really the same thing, you know, experientially speaking. So the way I see it is that it is inherent potential for all of us. doesn't need to manifest except when we are, you know, ready for it and open for it, then it will manifest in its full regalia. It could manifest fully or a limited way, depending on our capacity. So for me, that way is actually philosophically more sound. I think of it that way. So which means the other thing about the unmanifest. We talk about the unmanif- The true unmanifest is truly unmanifest, is unexperiencible.
1: Let's see, wouldn't that be say, go against, for example, you've mentioned zogchen and and awareness Rigpa, which is described as unman un unmanifest or beyond both unmanifest and well back up and say it gets tricky, of course, because the first claim would be that it's beyond any description, <laughs> but <laughs> since we've got to use words, there seems to be the the implication that it is unmanifest it is. Is not a phenomenon per se. How does that fit?
2: But that is an interpretation of unmanifest. and manifest. And manifest is something truly unmanifest. Mean you it doesn't it doesn't you can't see it, you can't experience it. That's the definition of unmanifest. You know, literally, if you go to the dictionary, unmanifest mean it doesn't appear. However, it can manifest some of its potential. And one of those potential is Rigpa.
1: Okay, that's a different, yes, that's a very different perspective from the.
2: Uh... It's a different perspective. I'm bringing in a different perspective. Like, there is, like in my experience of myself, I mean, in the way, one way I arrived at this, and at some point recognized, I am what I am. I am that. Just add the, the, you know, Vedanta will say. However, I cannot say what that is, because it's and unperceivable, unknowable, and it's what I am is unknowable. I don't know what I am, but I am that. And I, what I know, I know that, but I don't know what it is. However, I know what it manifests. It can manifest me as a human being, or it could manifest me as a pure love, or it can manifest me as you know Rigpa. All of that, all of these are the manifestation of the truly unmanifest. I take unmanifest literally, I mean and not manifest to anybody, not just to the ordinary person.
1: Okay, well, that puts uh, not much one could say about that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, but that's I, not, you know, we, we talk about love, which is one of the manifest dimensions of true nature.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, I don't, I don't want to get let you get out of here without answering or at least t- speaking about this. In your book, you talk about the personal nature of God. Stay tuned for part two of this conversation. We are jumping in the river. We are in the flow, and we are ready to go. So don't miss this. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iWake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John Roger and the Deep Transformation team.